Okay, so this is going to be a new show uh, that I'm going to be hosting on YouTube and as a podcast uh, on SoundCloud. Uh, and it's going to be called Fat Bidens. Uh, just chit chat lah with Zan Azli. Now, I don't know if this is going to be a regular thing. Uh, I hope it becomes a regular thing, but it's going to be a show where whenever I get the opportunity to speak to interesting people about interesting topics, I'm going to do it, right? Uh, if it becomes regular, it becomes a weekly thing or even a fortnightly thing, I'll be happy. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, so, this first episode, I got the opportunity to actually speak to uh, Kyle Kondik, who is actually a political analyst, a political scientist, uh, who's attached with the University of Virginia uh, Center for Politics uh, in the United States of America. And he was brought down, and the, the, the interview that I had with him was arranged by the U.S. Embassy in Kuala Lumpur. Thank you very much uh, for arranging it for me. Uh, and we get to speak about something that's uh, kind of very hot uh, in the attention of everybody around the world, which is the U.S. elections, the coming U.S. elections. We've got two candidates that apparently nobody in the U.S. likes. There's Hillary Clinton, who is uh, running on the, on, on the de- Democrats, under the Democrats' uh, ticket. And then we have money, 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 Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump, the Trump. Right, so it was a very interesting conversation I had with uh, Kyle, Kyle Kondik, uh, and um, so we talk about a lot of things. We talk about the political system in America. We talk about uh, the role that the president plays in the, the the government of the United States of America. Does he really have a lot of power? He's considered the leader of the free world. He's the guy who has a responsibility to press the button, if you know what I mean. So does he really have a lot of power? Is he actually able to do a lot of things that he says he's going to do? He or she, or she, right? Uh, we also speak about civic consciousness among Americans. We try to relate it to politics in Malaysia as well. We try to relate it to things that are happening in Malaysia. Uh, we try to relate it to things. Um, we try to relate it to the, the, the civic awareness and political awareness of Malaysians, of their own political system as well. Uh, it's quite an interesting uh, conversation. Uh, so, you know, without further ado, here's the conversation. First question I want to ask you is, whenever there's a presidential election coming up mm-hmm. right, in the United States of America, it's, it, it gets like this global attention. Mm-hmm. The media loves it. Everybody pays attention. Everybody, every, everybody observes. Everybody watches it. Everybody gets interested. And then um, it's like, it's like, it's really very personality based. Yeah. You know, like this one, you've got Trump, mm-hmm. who is like a, uh, I wouldn't say darling in the media. Is he? Yeah, I think he is. He is? I think darling? He is. Yeah. A media darling? Well, certainly in the sense he gets a lot of attention. Uh, although I think that a lot of the coverage has been critical, although I think Trump is the kind of person who, um, you know, it's the old thing about, uh, you know, say what you want, just make sure you spell my name right, you know. <laughs> right. the, and, and I think that's that's the deal with, with, uh, with Trump. And, yeah, I do think American politics is a little bit uh, personality-based, although Americans also are pretty lo- loyal to their parties at this particular point in time. The, um, we're, we see a lot of polarization between, uh, between the two parties um, uh, at this particular uh, point in time. The other thing is that, 
you know, of course, so of course, the United States, ever since World War II, has been this you know, powerful force in the world. And uh, particularly after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, we were the sole superpower. You know, there are other countries sort of challenging the United States. But, uh, you know, the United States sort of gets a lot of attention anyway because who the president is can have sort of wide-ranging effects on other countries. But also, you know, the United States produces a lot of the world's movies and culture and sort of sets the tone for yeah. culture. And I kind of wonder if... Um, the presidential race is like sort of part of the entertainment I product that, that, <laughs> that the United States exports to the rest of the world. Uh, so you know, it's it's uh, Captain America and it's it's Iron Man, and then it's also the presidential race. I just wonder if there's kind of a a, t- a tabloid kind of interest in U.S. politics that sort of goes beyond just the actual like policy ramifications. And so maybe that's part of the reason why. Um, people, you know, halfway across the world from the United States, here in Malaysia, and I was also in Singapore, you know, really interested in American politics. And I, I think the people I've talked to have been really pretty well versed in, uh, in what's going on. Yeah, I mean, if you walk in KL uh, and, and even in Indonesia, you'll see people wearing Obama's T-shirts. Yeah, no, yeah. He's like a rock star. Yeah, <laughs> well, I do think that, that uh, you know, symbolically the United States electing an African-American yeah. president was really a big deal uh, to, uh, to, a lot of, to a lot of people all across the world. And um, you know, Trump doesn't have that kind of appeal uh, internationally, I don't think. I don't actually think that maybe Hillary Clinton does either, although yeah. just in in public surveys I've seen of other countries and also just in talking to people here, it's pretty clear that, that most of the people seem to, to support Clinton over Trump. How important actually is the president in the goings-on of the country? How, how important is he? I think the president is really important, but I also think that the people who say that seem to think that the president is the only thing that matters and that we're sort of electing a dictator is probably not right. Um, Americans uh, really turn out to vote much more for president than they do for uh, the down ticket offices. So, you know, we elect the president every four years and then every every um, between the presidential elections, we have the midterm election, which is just House and uh some of the U.S. Senate seats turn out. The presidential is usually about 60%. Midterm turnout is usually about 35 to 40%. So there's a big chunk of voters, maybe about a third of the electorate, that just doesn't show up for the midterm elections. It just does, goes to show how much the president dominates the, the interest in the election. But, you know, Congress is very important in setting U.S. policy. Uh, and also the, the president appoints uh, justices to the Supreme Court when, the, when a vacancy occurs. In fact, there's a vacancy right now. Uh, Obama has appointed a replacement for conservative Antonin Scalia, who died earlier this year. Republicans in the Senate have refused to hold a vote on uh, Obama's uh, replacement for Scalia. But, you know, the court um, also exercised some power over the, uh, the legislative branch and the executive branch. And so, you know, the president doesn't necessarily have... I mean, he has a lot of power, particularly in, in matters of foreign affairs, but he also needs, um, you know, the support of Congress from time to time and the support of the courts. And if the president goes too far, the courts and the Congress can intervene to try to rein in the president. It's, it's like a check and balance, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and American politics, on one hand, it can be frustrating because particularly in times of divided government, which is what we have now, you've got a Democratic president, mm-hmm. Republican Congress, kind of a split Supreme Court with a, with a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Uh, it can be hard for a lot of things to get done, but sometimes a lot of people are in favor of action, but other people could be in favor of inaction or just sort of letting, uh, you know, not not introducing new government programs and that sort of thing. I mean, uh, we think of governing as doing a lot of new policy, 
but sometimes you could argue that maybe it's just better to leave things alone in certain in, in certain ways. So uh, it's not like a you know a classic parliamentary system where you know the 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 people elect one house of a legislature and then that the 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 winning party or the winning coalition has a prime minister and then they have a lot more freedom maybe to do things. Uh, the United States government is not set up that way. And again, there are pluses and minuses to that. So it's it's uh, it's really interesting for me because okay, in Malaysia you've sure. got a parliamentary system. Yeah. You, you you vote for a party. That party will select the prime minister. Mm-hmm. In parliament, when they when they have debates and all that, there's a party whip. Yeah. A, a guy who makes sure everybody in the party votes a certain way. You know? Yeah. So there's no individual. Uh, you well, know. you know we have that in in Congress too. Uh, the parties try to maintain unity on these votes, particularly in the U.S. House. Uh, but actually, we're in a situation where. Uh, it's become harder and harder for the Republicans who control the House to maintain party unity because there's kind of a, a, a you know, the Republicans are a right-wing party, but then there's also like a pretty hard right-wing part of the GOP or the grand old party, the Republican mm-hmm. Party, um, that uh, that doesn't go along with the leadership. And right. so, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's there's um, there's sorts of, there's sorts of mechanisms to try to maintain party unity in the in the House too. So you've got these. President, president, presidential candidates, they're going out, they're campaigning, saying, when I get into office, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, this is my policy, this is my, you know? And then you've got the 60% who come up to vote mm-hmm. compared to the 30% who, 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 who vote for the... Uh, in the, the midterm, yeah, yeah. the midterm elections. Uh, it's funny because actually... The president, the, pre- the president, when he says he wants to do this and do that, he really can't do it because he it has to depend on all these other branches, which right. most of the people who... They don't go out to vote, mm-hmm. right? And they're just voting for the president. It's what, what, what do you think about that? So you know, it, it is it is um, you know again the, the the presidential candidates make all sorts of promises and then they try to deliver on them. I'd actually say that whatever you may think about Obama as president, he did promise a number of things when he was running, including uh, the Affordable Care Act, which is this uh, uh, sort of expansion of health insurance mm-hmm. coverage, which has sort of sort of worked and sort of hasn't maybe worked as as well as as some have hoped. But, you know, he campaigned on that, and then he got elected, and he, he did it with the Dem- with Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate. Uh, and he also can't, you know, I think he was elected to, to wind down the war in Iraq, and right. he, he did that too. And he also has wound down the war in Afghanistan to, to a certain degree. And so, you know, he, you know, he, he did, he did um, I think he overpromised in certain other ways. He, he big part of his president, of his campaign was trying to uh, bring the country together and to try to paper over some of the par- party divides in the United States, and that didn't work at all. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the candidates do, you know, politicians say all sorts of things during campaigns, but generally speaking, they try to do the things they say they're going to do. Now, particularly if they don't control the House and the Senate, it's very hard for them to right. do that. Um, but th- that they, they still try to make the effort. And I think that, you know, Donald Trump has made some fairly outlandish policy proposals, including, you know, building a wall on the Mexican border with the United States. Um, You know, in order to do that, he'd probably need to work with Congress to do it. Or if he tried to do this by executive order, um, maybe there'd be a lawsuit over it or something. So again, you see that sort of checks and balances in play. Speaking about executive order, okay, what are the things, what are the powers or the authority that the president has it solely his, and he doesn't have to get seek approval from anywhere else. So the president has fairly wide-ranging authority in certain international uh, matters. Um, the president can uh, basically has uh, some powers to uh, 
launch limited uh, military engagements across the world. For instance, uh, the United States intervened uh, against ISIS, um, and uh, the, uh, the Congress never really uh, approved that. Uh, in fact, I think Obama wanted um, wanted Congress to approve certain missions in Syria and what have you, and Congress really didn't do it. And I think that Congress sometimes uh, Congress has kind of receded over in recent decades in the area of international affairs and sort of ceded more power to the president. In part because I think that Congress doesn't want to be held responsible for anything that might go wrong overseas. Right. Uh, so and also, you know, Congress did authorize uh, the uh, America's intervention in Iraq, but um, it, it maybe didn't uh, maybe didn't do it to, to quite the degree that uh, um, that uh, the, that war was eventually carried out. Uh, and actually, a better example is uh, uh, the authorization that Congress gave George W. Bush after the 9/11 attacks. Um, maybe were taken a little bit further than Congress really intended. Um, additionally, uh, the president does have certain powers to prevent people from certain countries from entering uh, the nation. And this is germane if um, when Donald Trump has talked about banning Muslims from the United States, uh, you can't do that because uh, people who enter the United States don't have to reveal what their religion is. There's no religious mm-hmm. test to enter the United States. So uh, even if uh, Trump wanted to do that, there's really not a mechanism to do that. But he could point out uh, countries that have had problems with terrorism or other or other factors uh, and, and say that, that people from those certain countries can't enter the United States. Now, uh, there might be public outcry if he does that, and there also might be lawsuits if he tried to do that. But uh, the, the president does have some latitude in uh, determining immigration policy as well uh, without necessarily having the input of Congress. Right. Uh, uh, and now, how aware are Americans, the public, uh, politically when they see these two kinds of kids? Now, a lot of people are saying that uh, – all the media that I've read and all that and the observations that I've made, made, uh, made and I've seen, uh, it seems that a lot of Americans are not very happy with the candidates that they have right now, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so how is that going to affect the elections? Is it going to be a lower turnout? Is it going to be a higher turnout? Are they more aware of things? Uh, yeah. So we do have um, arguably the, the two most unpopular, the, the most unpopular pair of candidates we've ever had at a modern presidential election uh, Clinton's favorability is generally about 40% favorable, 55% unfavorable. Trump is more like 30% favorable, 60-65% unfavorable. So these are two pretty unpopular candidates, um, and there are there's a big percentage of the population who really doesn't like either of them, particularly young people who are the kind of the least reliable voters. Right. Uh, they generally don't like Clinton or Trump all that much, and so some may vote third party. Uh, Clinton will win that demographic, but mm. maybe not uh, do as well as she would like in that demographic. Uh, as for turnout, uh, there's a, a fairly high number of undecided voters right now, and typically undecided voters are the ones who are paying the least amount of attention. Right. And so some of those undecideds may just decide not to vote at all. And so it's possible that uh, turnout might uh, might actually go down from the customary 60% we've seen in the last few elections because maybe there's some people who are just dissatisfied with their choices. On the other hand, 
perhaps the unique level of dislike of both Trump and Clinton will motivate people to come out to vote against the candidate that they don't That's like. Right, um, and there are, there's a, a big group of voters who say, you know, Clinton voters who say they're mostly voting against Trump as opposed to for Clinton, and an even bigger percentage of Trump voters who say they're voting against Clinton as opposed to for Trump. There's a phenomenon, or there's a name for this phenomenon in American politics. It's called negative partisanship. It means that you're more voting against the other party than in support of your own party. And if negative partisanship defines this election, then maybe turnout actually will go up. But I, I feel a little bit... I feel a little bit more like turnout's going to go down, maybe as opposed to up. Do you think if, if the voter turnout goes down, will it be in favor for the two candidates, or would it be better to have a higher voter turnout? So generally speaking, Democrats do a little bit better when turnout's better, um, in part because Republican voters are generally the more reliable voters. Mm-hmm. They're older and whiter, and sort of those demographics vote more, uh, more regularly, not just in presidential elections, but also in the midterm elections and other elections in the United States. Uh, and also um, uh, some of some of the uh, uh, minority groups in the United States, including most particularly Hispanics, really don't vote at the level to which their population level would, would, would you know, would, would indicate. So they, they don't, uh, they don't quite uh, vote as much as, as their percentage of the population would be. In this election, though, there seem to be a not insignificant number of reliable Republican voters who don't like Trump and might vote for Clinton. And so even if turnout goes down amongst the youngest voters, which might generally hurt Democrats, some of those typically reliable Republicans might vote for Clinton, in which case lower turnout might actually not be that bad of a problem for, for Clinton. Right, okay. See, in, in Malaysia, I think uh, it's kind of similar because in Malaysia, uh, the ruling party, Barisan National, will probably rely on a lower voter turnout, mm-hmm. whereas the opposition might want a higher voter turnout. Yeah. So it, it's kind of similar, right? The Republican, Democrats, the conservative, the liberals. Yeah, and, and again, it's, it's um, you know, it hasn't always been the case that the youngest voters in the United States were the most democratic, but it is at this particular point mm-hmm. in time. And part of it is that non-white voters are so democratic and the youngest generation is also the most diverse generation. And despite Clinton's problems with young voters, a lot of young voters supported Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary. Uh, young voters really, really don't like Trump. And part of it is that a lot of non-whites perceive Trump to be hostile to them and Trump has sort of uh, not been particularly internationalist in his outlook. He's maybe offended certain minority groups. And young voters are the ones who are most particularly in tune to issues of diversity and issues of internationalism. So while Clinton may do worse than, she tip, than Democrats typically do with young voters, Trump probably will do worse than Republicans typically do. And so maybe it all just kind of balances out amongst the youngest voters. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because it's interesting because in the U.S. you can have very liberal Republicans and very conservative Democrats. And they kind of meet in the middle. Well, so that's been changing, though, in, in American yes. politics in that um, for a long time you had – you almost had three parties in the United States. You had the Democratic Party, you had the Republican Party, and then you had the Southern Conservative Democratic Party. And that was true for much of the 20th century. But a lot of those conservative Democrats have become Republicans over time. Uh, and that's been reflected in, in the U.S. House delegation from the South, which has become heavily Republican after it used to be heavily Democratic. In fact, the Democrats controlled the House for most of uh, the second half of the 20th century. Uh, in part because it was a, a combination of conservative Southern Democrats and liberal Northern Democrats. But now a lot of those conservative Southern Democrats are Republicans, and uh, the old kind of Northeastern liberal Republican wing 
has essentially died out. So most of those old liberal Republicans are now Democrats. Um, in one hand, it sort of ma- makes sense because, uh, you know, the Democrats are now very clearly the liberal party. The Republicans are now very clearly the conservative party. If you want a conservative, vote Republican. If you want a liberal, vote Democrat. Uh, but uh, since you don't have those kind of moderate wings of both parties, it may be harder to sort of build coalitions in Congress to get things passed. And so uh, I think government is probably a little bit more dysfunctional than it has been because there isn't a lot of uh, cooperation between the two parties because they're so um, they're so ideologically distinct now. Okay, like a, a little bit more global approach. Now we're going to look at things a little bit more global. Um, do you see a trend? I kind of see like there's a trend. If you see uh, in the Philippines, mm-hmm. right? They've uh, gone a little bit more conservative. They've gone a little bit more. Uh, scared maybe, a little bit more stricter, and they voted Duterte. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you go to the United Kingdom, they had the, refer- they had the memorandum uh, leaving the EU. Mm-hmm. They've gone a bit more conservative, they've gone a bit more, I guess, scared, you know, and they voted to leave the EU. Uh, is this something that's also happening in the United States? So I think that certainly the Trump nomination indicates the Republican Party at this moment is sort of looking more inward as opposed to internationalist. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, the Republican Party is typically a party of free trade, at least recently, but uh, Republicans now um, oppose free trade by a lot, and I think they're sort of taking their cues from Trump. And, yeah, I think we've seen certainly across Europe a sort of a rise of kind of far-right nationalist parties, uh, is UKIP in the United Kingdom, uh, uh, Marine Le Pen's group in, uh, I think, the National Front in, uh, in France, uh, uh, a kind of a far-right nationalist came very, very close to winning the Austrian presidential election. In fact, I think they're going to have a, uh, a re-vote in the Austrian election um, because there's some voting irregularities. Uh, there, the, some far-right groups have done well in uh, German uh, mm-hmm. state-level elections. And so there has been uh, some kind of uh, inward-looking nationalist politics uh, rising across the United States and Europe and maybe some other places. Uh, and so the Trump phenomenon in the United States is not necessarily unique. Right, okay. Uh, personal question. Mm-hmm. Republican or Democrat? You. Um, so I, we are a nonpartisan uh, <laughs> right, okay. uh, uh, group at the University of Virginia Center for Politics. But in the interest of full disclosure, I can say that the one political job I had, I worked for a Democrat. Uh, I was I worked for the Ohio Attorney General's office in 2009 and 2010, uh, and I worked for a guy named Richard Cordray again, who is a Democrat. Cordray is now uh, the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in Washington D.C., uh, which is um, uh, which is a, a federal uh, a new federal agency that was set up a few years ago by uh, uh, primarily by Democrats in in, in Congress. So. You know, that, you know, in full disclosure, that's what my background <laughs> is. Uh, but we also try to our main concern at, at our Crystal Ball newsletter is basically trying to pick the election right, and uh, um, partisanship can kind of blind you maybe to what's to what's happening. And so again, we we favor Clinton to win at this point. Right. We think she's the favorite, um, but we also need to be cognizant that uh, there's still time for Trump potentially to make a comeback. Uh, the University of Virginia, uh, 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 you, you, last night you mentioned that uh, one of your objectives, one of your uh, main intentions is to actually introduce civic education in the education system. you talk a little bit about that? So, yeah, the University of Virginia Center for Politics, um, we do our crystal ball newsletter, but we also do a number of other things. We bring a lot of international groups uh, to Charlottesville, so we've had... Uh, 
really groups from all over the world who have uh, have come and, and uh, learned about American democracy in Charlottesville and, and in other places. And we, um, one of our partners in that is is the uh, U.S. State Department. Um, we also uh, do a lot of free civics education lesson plans for um, for uh, for uh, schools across the. Uh, across the nation and also some international schools too. Uh, and those are, you know, lesson plans about uh, American governance. And uh, we feel like that the motto for um, the Center for Politics is politics is a good thing. A lot of people don't think that. They think that politics is bad. Um, but uh, politics is really the only way you get things done. And you have to sort of uh, be cognizant of how uh, government systems work and then uh, hopefully get engaged to try to accomplish the things that you want to do. And that's what we try to do. We try to get people interested in, uh, in politics and try to teach them about uh, what's happening. It's important, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, um, uh, I think that, you know, we can always do better in terms of getting people to, to turn out mm-hmm. to vote. And maybe to be a little bit informed. And, you know, the, the country is so divided right now and uh, people increasingly are kind of um, self-selecting in terms of the kinds of news they get. Maybe they're getting partisan news. They're not really paying attention to the other side. Um, what we try to do is sort of foster dialogue between the two sides and, uh, you know, see if we can get people to, to understand understand each other a little bit better. Well, that's something that I've been trying to push in Malaysia as well. I, recently, I went on radio trying to promote civic education mm-hmm. and social studies in, in schools, uh, from primary schools to secondary schools to even university level, which is very lacking in Malaysia. Yeah. You well, and, and we, you know, we find I mean, part of the reason that we have our youth leadership initiative, which right. is our free civics education for a lot of schools, is that um, we find that um, American schools maybe don't do as good of a job as, as maybe they could in terms of teaching students about politics. I mean, right. Part of the problem, I think, is that a lot of Americans don't like to talk about politics because uh, politics can get people really passionate and and fired up and argumentative. And I think that most people naturally want to avoid arguments. Uh, And I think maybe teachers uh, maybe aren't as comfortable sometimes bringing up partisan politics because uh, they don't want to be seen as taking sides or that sort of thing. Uh, but it's important to talk about it. I think it's particularly important to talk about it with younger people as they're still sort of um, formulating their own opinions about things. I mean, um, I know that a lot of a lot of children end up taking after their parents in terms of their personal politics. But uh, just because their parents may be one party doesn't mean maybe maybe the the kids if they're oppo- if they're uh, exposed to different ideas, maybe they go a different way, and that's fine. I mean, that's what the country is supposed to be, and people are supposed to, to think for themselves. And so um, I think it's important that we try, to, we try to teach people about that. I remember I spent a little bit of my formative years in the U.S. Uh, uh, I think I was in seventh grade. It was in the ni- mm-hmm. 1989, 1990. Yeah. I was in New York. I remember I had a social studies teacher, Mr. Nelson. Mm-hmm. Right? Every day he would come into class, and he would make us, force us to read the New York Times. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And this was like, I was, what, 12, yeah. 13? And... Uh, so I, I think it's going okay. I think that I think that's I think that's great, and I think that um, you know I think too many schools don't really do the current events kind of thing. I mean, I went to I, I I'm from uh, um, the greater Cleveland area in Ohio. Uh, I went to you know basically upper middle class uh, public schools uh, there, and my education was very good. But in thinking back, uh, I don't know if we got the kind of civics civics education that would have been, you know, I think maybe we could have used a little bit more of that. And I ended up obviously getting into that as I got older. 
Um, but, uh, you know, we didn't really read a lot of nonfiction. We weren't really reading the newspaper all that often. Uh, and maybe it would have been, you know, I, I guess if I was running it, maybe I would do it differently. But I also am obsessed with this stuff. So maybe yeah. I, I pay more attention to it than, than maybe is reasonable. <laughs> so, Okay, last question. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that soon in, in the U.S. there's going to be a change of songs from Hail the Chief, I think, to maybe... The theme song from The Apprentice? <laughs> um, I do not. Uh, I do think, again, I do think that Clinton is favored in this election, <laughs> okay. but um, there may be uh, certain things that uh, that happen unpredictably in the next few months that uh, that change that. Uh, but as of now, the best indicators that we have sort of suggest Clinton. But uh, you know, you never want to never want to close the book on things until until it's actually decided. Sure, sure. But if he, if Trump does get elected president, he doesn't have he, he doesn't have veto power over the song, right? <laughs> no, I think that he would. I think he there are certain traditions that even Trump uh, couldn't couldn't right. throw out. So. Okay. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's uh, been a pleasure. Absolutely.